Welcome to Clean Air for All by Yuhu. It's a podcast from Yuhu about creating a healthy home and life with good indoor air quality. Each month we will speak with experts and share helpful information and insights about anything and everything that concerns the air we breathe and how we can protect the health and safety of our homes and families while we stay indoors. From understanding indoor pollutants, the benefits of ventilation, the importance of continuous air quality monitoring to new technologies and more. Hey, welcome to Clean Air for All with Yuhu. My name is Matthias Gelber, nickname occasionally the Green Man. And uh, I love being on this show because I always have amazing guests coming in and I learn something new every time. So today I have the great pleasure to introduce our guest, Gwen Lin. She is an environmental safety scientist and a founder of In a Green Minute Consultants. I like that kind of stuff because I've always tried to bring it into a minute and bring people into the green agenda. Having a BS at from Rutgers University, MS, City University of New York, both in the same science discipline. She's also the chairman of the Board of Mothers and Others for Clean Air in the US. And this organization works to advance public policy that will improve air quality and fight climate change in order to reduce the effects of air pollution on public health. She splits her professional time between New York, where she was born and raised, and the Southeast in the US, where her parents reside. So um, I'm really looking forward to this. So Gwen, uh, let uh, me start off with asking you, what do you do with uh, Mothers and Others for Clean Air? It sounds very intriguing. I really looking forward to hear a bit more about uh, the organization's mission and activities. Absolutely. Thank you, Mateus, for having me. It's such a pleasure to join you and your podcast audience. Mothers and Others for Clean Air is a great group. They're an organization based in Atlanta, where this is basically what they do. They go out and talk to mothers, many in the school system, some not, and the community to try and enhance and highlight the effects of bad air pollution. So when it said mothers and others, I was really intrigued about that because it tries to include everybody, men parents, non-parents, everybody, because the way I like to say is, how long can you hold your breath? A minute, two minutes, eventually you're going to have to breathe in and you would prefer to have clean air. So yeah, we do a lot of our uh, canvassing and we try to emphasize efforts in not just um, the Southeast, but we try and also, because I'm from New York, try and bring in as many organizations and as many different uh, areas as we can. So a lot of work in Georgia, Florida, Alabama. I'm from New York and New Jersey. So we try and get the word out there. One thing that we've uh, recently been able to do is to advance and highlight the use of electric school buses. You know as well as I do when it comes to outdoor air pollution, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide from vehicles and transportation is a huge, huge component. And if we can get that one area, the school system, to convert to non-fossil fuels, to convert to electric vehicles, again, that, and especially when it you know, involves our school children, they are small in age. You know, nobody wants them exposed to some of these hazardous air pollutants to get that sector of the society 
to go over to electric vehicles, I think is really great. And we've been able to do that recently, at least in the, the city of Atlanta. I don't know if you know Atlanta, Georgia, but it's a pretty big city. And hopefully we can take this program elsewhere. All right. Great. So a lot of awareness raising and action on the ground reminds me just about uh, an experience I had when I moved to Malaysia. I had this uh, indoor air quality assessment done and uh, the guy came in. He was very puzzled. Why are you doing it? Because it's not required by law. But I told him I want to know whether I'm safe here. And he measured the indoor air and the outdoor air. And the outdoor air was actually much worse than the indoor air because uh, of the heavy car and vehicle traffic in that area surrounding the condo where I was staying. So uh, that uh, is in line with what you just said. So going back a little bit, uh, Gwen, environmental health and safety as a, a big subject, how did you get personally excited about it uh, already as a, as a teenager? How did you get into this field and what was your enlightenment that this is really important? Oh, absolutely. I always liked science, always liked science. And I was always in front of the TV watching science shows, even as a kid, watching medical shows. And so I knew that was one area that I wanted to grow up and be in. And in school, I was originally uh, pre-med biology. And my dean was like, well, if you're going to be biology, you're going to probably be stuck in a lab for the rest of your life. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do that. I love lab work. But I didn't know if I wanted to do that to, for the rest of my life. And pre-med, as you probably know, is like you have to have a cum of like A's, you know, and I didn't have I had a lot of A's, but I didn't have that many. So I said, well, let me look at something else. And in the 80s, the late 80s, early 90s, the, the whole um, you know spectrum of environmental health was really starting to come forward. Earth Day was starting to get more popular. California, the state of California really leads that effort and it really seemed to be, you know, everything was going green, thus the green hair. So I decided to major in environmental science and then I continued on and got my master's in it. And one big sector of that is health and safety. And from a professional uh, sense, you just said it, when it comes to residential in the home, there's only but so many regulations that you can enforce within the home. The home is your castle. You do what you, you, know, you want to do, reasonably speaking, within your home. But outside, there's a huge sector when it comes to public health and when it comes to occupational health and safety. And in New York, construction, I don't know if you've ever been to New York, but in New York, construction is huge. We do a lot of what we call major buildings because the buildings are tall, they're big, they're huge. And occupational health and safety is a, a, a very big portion of the economy. So again, when you go inside the occupational setting, whether it's this a school or an office, you have to do some type of monitoring from a public health standpoint because it is a business. It's not a home. It's a business. And you just said it. The outside air is coming into the inside air. So if the outside air is already contaminated, it's already coming into, if it's not filtered or you know ventilated in some way, it's coming into the indoor air quality, in, into the indoor spectrum. So IAQ, indoor air quality, is another huge spectrum when it comes to environmental health. And it was, I just, it was something that I just thought was interesting. It was something that I thought, even though people may not be exposed to it from the scientific perspective, people are still being exposed to it because everybody wants clean air. Everybody wants clean water. Everybody wants clean food. They just don't know how to go about it. So that's what we do. And that mm -hmm. was one of the reasons that I got into the industry. 
Yeah, exciting. I mean, I have an environmental science master as well. I had this vision too. I want to understand where the pollution comes from so that we can save the planet and the people by uh, reducing pollution. I mean, Rachel Carson's book at that time made the link and we started to understand and then a whole uh, movement followed. And uh, I was involved in an interesting project as well that was looking at buildings in New York and what data is available on issues like water quality, environmental, uh, um, air quality uh, metrics. And I was blown away by how much data there is. But one thing that isn't available is inside of public buildings like shopping malls, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what is the air quality inside. So that's kind of a little bit puzzling, even though in many ways, health safety regulations in the past have tried to protect the workers working on projects. But once projects Mm -hmm. are operational, we seem to think, oh, it's all going to be okay. And we don't really track the health-related environmental aspects for for the people being in those buildings. I mean, are we going to see changes in that in the next few years? What do you think, Gwen? I don't know, but I do think that is an excellent, excellent aspect of things because I, I mean, I've thought about it, but I wonder if there are records. In fact, that is something that we may want to come back to at a later podcast to look to see if there are uh, public records with respect to indoor air quality. For instance, like you said, at, at a mall, there are many, many buildings in New York and, and I guess across the country too, where they're built, but there's stores underneath. Okay, so there'll yeah. be like an uh, inner, a, a very small indoor mall at the bottom of the building, and then there are residences or hotels or whatever you know you want to call it, residences above. So um, I'd be curious to find out, you know, if there are records with with that type of, of um, scenario. I would think that there probably are because I would think that the owner or the developer would want that information to protect them sometime in the future. Do you know what I mean? Even if it's an annual or a six-month thing, I would I would take a guess and say maybe people are doing the right thing. I don't know, that, but that's something I'd like to get back to. And just for your listeners, Rachel Carlson, uh, they may know her, they may not, but I had to study her in my master's. She wrote mm. a book called Silent Spring, which was basically about the effects of DDT. Back in the day, way back when, um, not way back when, I think that was the 70s or the 60s, I'm not sure, but they used to have the... Uh, waste product of DDT or the actual product and dump it in the rivers, dump it in the lands. And what ended up happening was DDT, which is a very harsh chemical, got into the environment and it affected the birds. Rachel Carson was a, a biologist and a naturalist, and she observed that the birds weren't chirping. That's why she calls it silent spring. The babies, they weren't chirping in the morning the way you would normally hear them outside your outside your room or outside your office or whatever. So that's why she called the book Silent Spring, and it was affecting the reproductive rates of the birds. Yeah, thanks for offering that insight into our listeners. I know the book had an impact on me. I couldn't recall all those details anymore, but I think it shaped and infused a generation of scientists like you and me to really go deeper and, and try and make the link because before industrialization was being conducted uh, without much care for the side effects to humans and uh, the biological ecosystem, 
And I think that's why environmental health is, is so critical. I mean, now we are more aware, but, but in those days, you know, people would just dump things. And in Germany, we had acid rain. Our pine trees were dying. Scientifically, it was very clear where the acid came from. Coal-fired power plants with high sulfur content, sulfuric acid, chemical industry, you know, from a scientific point of view, you could make the link. But then getting the legislation changed to avoid those problems of toxic waste, that was really a key challenge. But yeah, we, we, we've come a long way. And from your perspective, uh, uh, the history of environmental health, Gwen, what were the breakthrough moments uh, um, on, a, on a public perspective and even, you know, from a personal perspective where you saw major uh, advancements in the way people were thinking and, and acting on it. Briefly, when it comes to the history of environmental health, early in the 20th century, uh, there was a guy by the name of Sir Chadwick, and he established uh, some water quality methodologies, and he established an association for public sanitation with respect to water quality. So I guess it was a, back then they didn't really have sewer systems. But as you have that sludge and human waste come through, obviously that now we know there's going to be some type of contamination and diseases, human resource diseases can be passed easily that way. And California, California, like I said, has led really with respect here in the United States has led the efforts. Uh, back in 1937, there was an association, um, I have it in my notes here, uh, the NEHA, the National Environmental Health Association, which is was established in California, and they really helped to bring together some of the professionals to, again, try to highlight some of these hazards and try to remediate them before they, they became the hazard. And in uh, 1980, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control here, again, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States, they got together and they established the Center for Environmental Health. And what they try and do is focus on causing disease when it comes to environmental factors. Again, air pollution, water quality, food, uh, occupational. And they, they try to come together, like I said, and establish the Center for Environmental Health, the CEH. Great. Excellent. Uh, a good long history. I always remember the uh, situation with my late grandmother. My uncle used to smoke quite heavily. And I told her, oh, uh, you're as well passively smoking, indirectly smoking. And my grandmother said, no, I'm, I'm not smoking, even though she was sitting every day with her son, right. my uncle, my late uncle, who at the end of his life actually acknowledged that, you know, he, he smoked too much when he was younger, that it affected his, his health. And my grandmother didn't want to accept and acknowledge that there was a, impact on her health coming from the passive smoking. So I guess we have come a long way as well for people to scientifically prove and to accept that there is a connection between what you're exposed to and what you might have as consequences in your life. I mean, what's the situation on that? Are we 100% uh, already there that people really make the link or are we still seeing that you know in terms of uh indoor uh, uh inner city pollution 
um, that might largely come from vehicles or as well from nearby factories or other sources of pollution, are people still kind of ignoring it uh, or have they fully embraced that link and are they doing something about it? I do think we're still in, on our journey. Even with Mothers and Others for Clean Air, it seems that if you're not involved, if you're not actively taking part, some people may not think of it. You know, they think, oh, the air quality in my office is fine. Have you ever asked? Have you asked to see the results? I mean, these are things that you can legitimately ask for. And if your employer has them, I'm sure they'd be able to give them to you. And if they don't, then again, that sends a red flag. So, yeah, I do think we're still on our journey. Again, some people may think that someone else will take care of it. You know, someone else will do this. Someone else will do that. But no, I, I kind of think it's up to us to ask and to try and push the industry or push the uh, you know office owner or the apartment owner, the condo owner, push them in an area that they can use their power to try and you know make our environment as as safe as possible. Again, as a scientist, I can give the resources, I can give the guidelines, I can you know say okay, you need to look out for this, this, and this, or ask for this, this, and this. Or if you send me a, a report, which I'm happy to, for any of you people in your audience, I'd be happy to review it for them and give them what I think of the of the observations or of the conclusion. However, it's up to the people, because like I say, you can only hold your breath for one or two minutes. You're going to have to breathe. And the cleaner the air, the better. It's um kind of, you know, it, it, with your story about, uh, was it your aunt or your uncle about breathing in the smoke? Yeah, my grandma. You know, your grandma, thank you. Uh, the asbestos industry, that's one of the things that really uh, spurred the asbestos industry because not only were people, the male, more than likely uh, coming home with asbestos on his clothing and getting asbestosis or getting lung cancer, the family was also getting it. And so the doctors and, the, and you know, the people that were the professionals that were mm. dealing with, with this were like, why is it the mother and the kids are also coming down sick while it's secondary exposure? They're not out there doing the work. The dad or the you know the man in the home is coming home with the stuff on his clothing. Mom's doing the wash. The kids want to hug dad, you know, when he gets home. So they're coming down with exposures also. And that's another key factor when it comes to environmental health. It's not just you, but it's also you and the people that, you know, you're around, people that are exposed to whatever it is that you're doing. So you're saying in the U.S., uh, in your live, if you live in a condo or you work in an office, you have the legal right to ask for uh, indoor air quality uh, monitoring data that the employer or the, uh, let's say, condo management is legally uh, required to, to have available? I didn't say the legal right. Ah, <laughs> I okay. said you have the right to. Again, that is something that I could look up and get back to you on because that's what I would do. Of course, I'm in mm. the profession. But if you have a question, why not ask? All you're doing is asking. And again, yeah. if they say no, or if the, if the information isn't brought to you or give you some type of an answer, even if it is, you know, we haven't done any air monitoring or whatever it is, that'll send a red flag for you to to possibly follow up on it. Yeah, because in I'm Southeast Asia, yeah, you sometimes have the other uh, point of view. Uh, people don't want to collect data because they think, oh, uh, if I don't have information about a problem, then I'm better off than uh, actually seeing or monitoring a problem. But that's a, 
uh, an outdated point of view that I think will will uh, uh, kind of, uh, especially with ESG agendas, environment, social governance. If you mm-hmm. don't look after your employees properly, then uh, you're not addressing one of the key assets that you have. But uh, just before we we finish off this segment, and then uh, we have another one that's uh, our part two, that asbestos example is is a very interesting example because at the end of the day, only once companies had to pay for the wrongdoings, or if we now look at uh, uh, you know other chemicals out there that currently big companies are facing lawsuits. I mean, this is really kicked in in North America. It's kicked in in Europe to a certain extent, but in Southeast Asia, it's still kind of uh, weak and not so much happening. But what was the breakthrough there in terms of, you know, was it really the fines that some big companies got and suddenly this became a priority issue? Yeah, I, I'd have to say so. And the lawsuit started to come. So with respect to asbestos, asbestos was outlawed in terms of building materials. I think it was 1976. So it was a long time for, that's decades ago now, a long time for those lawsuits to make it through the chain. But that was, again, one of the um, principal factors was that the family families were getting sick. So it just multiplied everything two and three and fourfold because now you have the families getting sick. And the only reason they were getting sick is because dad is coming home with this asbestos. So we, we, almost regardless of how it happened, it did happen. And we were able to, um, as, a, as a country, outlaw asbestos. So you still find it a little bit every, here, you know, every now and then, but it, it is a done deal here in this country. All right. Great. Uh, Thanks, Gwen. We've learned so much about environmental health and safety, the big picture view. Now, uh, our continuation that uh, you will get published in about two weeks time, will look at the home and the aspects of environmental health and safety in your home. So from the overarching big picture, we'll we'll, uh, go into your four walls what is possibly the most important for you your family your children uh, and everybody that's close to your heart so uh, see you again uh, or hear you again soon with our amazing guest Gwen Lin mm-hmm.